<laughs> Wasn't that magnificent music to introduce the senior pastor to the podium? <laughs> no, that was very well done. Enjoyed that, guys. Thank you. And it is exciting about the carols, isn't it? Dan and Liz uh, leading that, those teams up are doing a fantastic job. And with them, I join them in saying thank you to all of the people who have volunteered, who are participating in this, and we are going to pray in a moment. And we do need to pray for the weather. This is the rainy season, isn't it? So we need God's intervention. We need his assistance. He's the sovereign Lord, and he knows what's best. We think it's best to be outside. In fact, we know it's best to be outside. <laughs> but he is sovereign, and he has ways of working his purposes out. But still, let's present to him our petition, and that's our desire and what we will pray for, and expect in faith that he will um, answer us accordingly, that we can, as Dan and Liz said, send the gospel forth to more people. Let me encourage you to take some brochures. Uh, if you do nothing else, take one and put it on your fridge or put it somewhere obvious. Take a couple, take a handful and torment your neighbours with them. Give them to your neighbours. I wonder if your neighbours know that you follow Jesus my place uh, we've got new neighbors on one side of us but um, the other side uh, whom we know they certainly know that we follow jesus and they're going to get another invite this year they haven't come yet but one year one day they will they will get sick of me pestering them <laughs> and if for no other reason they will come um, but there's a new i think indian couple to our side here so they're about to get an invite as well so let me encourage you to do exactly the same. Take a brochure, give it to your neighbours, introduce yourself. It's so easy in our culture, isn't it? You drive home, you've got a remote control on your garage, the garage door goes up, you drive in, garage door goes down, you don't even see your neighbours. It's quite possible. Well, keep an eye out for them and go pull some weeds out of the garden when they're there and invite them to the carols. Let me encourage you to do that. Let me encourage you to pray for the carols uh, that people will come, people who need to hear the gospel. Take some of those tickets, as they're a dollar each, you can only buy them in lots of ten, so it'll cost you ten dollars. No, you can't buy five. You want to buy less than ten, you buy them on the day, I think, next Sunday. So packs of ten, and that's, again, an idea of giving them a gift. Give them a free ticket to come. Or if they come, when they get here, give it to them, because if they don't come, you'll be wasting money. So let me encourage you to do those things. Next Saturday, partly in preparation for that, but also end of year and Christmas stuff, we're having a working bee. We're having a massive clean-up at Hope House. So there's a note in the bulletin about that. If you've got stuff in Hope House, if you're a ministry leader, you need to you know, pack it away or look after it, read the note in the bulletin. And there's a working bee, a general working bee, here on the church property, Saturday, next Saturday, starting at about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Come when you can. 8 o'clock? <laughs> starting at 8 o'clock. 7.30 actually um, and I encourage you to come to that even if you can only come for a little while if you can't come Saturday maybe you can come before that during the days of this week and, and help out Kevin's with us this morning and Gay and they uh, have sent to some of you a text update on little Lucy who we were praying about Lucy's uh, nine days old now a week and two days old and she'd been having some brain hemorrhaging and that's now stopped um, and she was doing very well yesterday mum Rosalie and dad Stuart uh, she's interacting with them and responding to them and still not out of the woods, there's still issues and tests to come back and, but there's, the seizures have stopped, the bleeding has stopped, she's feeding normally, um, interacting with her mum and dad, um, 
So we still need to continue to pray. Because of the bleeds into various parts of the brain, there will be some uh, results from that. We're not sure exactly what it is. Uh, It'll probably affect her hearing and her sight. So that's an update for little Lucy. Please keep praying for her and for mum and dad. And if you get a prayer and praise notes, there's likewise another thing in there for the last couple of weeks about praying for a four-year-old child that has cancer. So if you get those notes, let me encourage you to pray about that as well. Uh, I'm going to lead you in prayer and I invite you to bow with me. Let's pray together. Father, we have this morning paused and given you thanks for sending Jesus into the world to redeem us. Lord Jesus, we have remembered your death and resurrection at communion and given you thanks for saving us. And now, Lord, we want to bring to you our petitions because you are not only our saviour and our Lord, but you are our high priest. You're the one who is interceding for us. We thank you that you're a God who listens to us. Lord, we ask all of these things submissively in your name, acknowledging that you know better than us. Your will is perfect. And so, Lord, you encourage us to come. And so we come again this morning and pray for little Lucy and for the other little one and pray for your intervention in their lives. I pray for the success uh, of the treatment for cancer in the little one. We thank you for Lucy and the improvement that she's experiencing. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to place your healing hand upon her. Strengthen Rosalind Stewart. Give them energy for each day of traveling to the hospital and help them to experience your nearness, to cast their cares upon you. And we likewise, Lord, pray for Kevin and Gay that you might sustain them. We remember our sister Morva Dick, a member of our church, who is um, approaching her departure from this world. We pray for her and thank you for her faith. We commit her family to you, her two daughters, Ailsa and Elaine, and ask, Lord, that you would sustain them. We pray for the many folk in our church who are not well, for those who are undergoing chemotherapy treatment for those who are having other operations for those undergoing MRIs and scans and tests if it's not folk Lord in our church it's uh, loved ones whom we know members of our own family who are affected by illnesses and we pray that you might uh, draw near to them help them to understand your um, sense of your peace and your presence and we even ask Lord for healing in their lives We pray for those who are shut in. We pray for those who have issues before the courts. We pray for those who are away on holidays. We pray for families. We pray for families that are struggling, particularly at this time of the year. We pray for our church family, for our members meeting this afternoon and asking for your will to be revealed, particularly in the um, process of recognising, nominating, electing elders. We thank you for these four men and their willingness to stand and to serve. And we simply ask for your will. To be done. We thank you for Josh, Josh Tan, and him signing up to be a student in training for ministry. And we thank you for Joel Lowe, for Brendan Cotton. We commit these young guys to you. We remember our students, Lord, to those in year 12, university students and theological students who have now come to a point of a significant break. Help them to use their time profitably. Help them particularly to read your word and to draw near to you. We pray for our associate pastor search team. We thank you for their faithfulness over the long haul. And even as they have a bit of a break, Lord, we ask that you might 
draw near to them, encourage them. We thank you for our D teams and the impact that's having upon our young people. We pray for Pastor David and Sylvia that they might rest well before beginning duties in a month or so. We thank you for Phil and Sharon and for Phil coming a couple of Sunday nights ago and pray that your will might continue to work out in their life. We pray for care outreach, for safety and travel, for divine timing in the presentation of gifts and goods. We pray for those Christmas boxes as they make their way overseas, that they'll have an impact for your kingdom. And Heavenly Father, we pray for our carols. Thank you for Dan and Liz and their leadership. Thank you for the people who have volunteered. Lord, we bring to you the weather. And we ask that you might, as you blessed us last year, that you can keep the storms away, you can part the storms, you can place a hedge of protection around us. And that's what we ask for, Lord, that there would be fine weather here, that people might come, that you might bring people to experience you through song, through the reading of your word, through the presentation of a Bible talk, through kids' items and whatever else is planned. Heavenly Father, we again ask for good weather, and we ask that you'll take these um, brochures as well and use them to attract people to come and hear the life-saving message of Jesus. Heavenly Father, all of these things we present to you and we ask submissively that your will would be done. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. And everyone said... Would you stand with me, please? In a moment, we're going to uh, read God's Word, and then we're going to spend some time talking about that. Just remind you of these yellow slips that are in the, um, the bulletin as a, a means of communication, prayer requests, or even ticking boxes to make some sort of responses. I commend that to you. I'd love to hear from you, so I encourage you to use those means. Let's take a couple of minutes and greet one another. See how you enjoy that. John chapter 6, we're going to read this morning. John chapter 6. <clears throat> Just before I read it to you, can I give a plea? I haven't done this for a long time. At one stage I used to do it quite a lot, but I haven't done it for a long time. Can I encourage those of you who do not have a particular reason to sit at the back, to sit at the front? Tell them. 
I'm telling them. <laughs> if you if you have a pram, uh, if you've got family issues, you know you you need for whatever reason, whether age or you've got to leave straight after the service, or you might have to leave you know during the service or something because of some other uh, thing you've got to get to today. If you don't, if you need to sit at the back, by all means, sit at the back. I'm just glad you're here. I don't care if you stand up, sit up there. That doesn't worry me. But this morning, uh, we have folks sitting, what do you call that? The alcove, down there. Outside the toilets is where they are. <laughs> and so it'd be nice for them to be not having to do that because there are a couple of rows here, at least 8, 10, 12. There's 18 spare chairs down the front. And so I'm not asking these guys because they've got prams and babies and that's not fair to ask them. Let's leave them at the back. Um, they didn't say that right, did I? Um, I didn't mean that. I mean, let's give them the opportunity to sit where they want to sit and... Oh, stop. And so if you're not needing to be... You've, I think you've understood what I'm saying. It's, let me encourage you to sit down the front. Uh, maybe particularly as we're heading to Christmas and you're going to have visitors coming and they, they don't want to sit down the front. They want to sit at the back. So don't give them dirty looks when you see people sitting down there and you don't think they should be. Just make way for them. And those of you who are regular, and I know you get used to sitting on one side of the building and you get used to a particular distance and you get used to the angle. And <laughs> uh, We do. We're creatures of habit. I... I can make you uncomfortable very easily. I just ask you to stand and, okay, you guys go sit over here and you guys go sit over there. You'll spend the whole service going, this feels wrong. <laughs> you just, we're creatures of habit. So, and I, I don't have any trouble sitting at the front. Even when I go to conferences, I much rather sit at the front than at the bank. That's just me. And so I always sit front. <clears throat> but we need you to sit at the front too. In fact, if you don't respond, then I might start paying people sit at the front. <laughs> Not very much, but I'll pay people. John chapter 6, we're going to read God's word. Um, we're in a, starting a series in the third week into a series on considering who Jesus was. Who was this man, Jesus? And this morning we're going to focus particularly upon his favourite title, Son of Man, that he was human. We're going to explore that a little bit. And I dare say for some, this may be a little controversial and it may be uncomfortable for you. And if that's the case, I encourage you by all means, come and chat, have a talk. Um, this is an important truth that we need to understand. And as good, solid evangelicals who believe in the deity of the Lord Jesus, that he is God the Son. We sometimes water down and struggle with this concept of his humanity and we modify, I think, what the scriptures actually say he did for it. So let's read John chapter 6. We're going to read two paragraphs from verses 35 to 40. <clears throat> this is an occasion where Jesus is speaking to the crowds and uh, they wanted to come and make him king. And he's just fed the 5,000 and... Uh, He's speaking specific, particularly to his disciples, but the crowd's overhearing. Um, verse 35, the Lord Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, 
and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then over to verse 66, where the crowd have been offended at Jesus' statements that he's the bread of life and whoever eats my bread and eats my body and drinks my blood, you have to do that or you have no part in him. And Jesus offended a lot of people in the crowd and many people said, verse 60, this is hard teaching and we can't accept it. And they left. They no longer followed him. So verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus asked the 12, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, again, we pause to give you thanks for your word. Without this revelation, we would be spiritually in the dark, groping around, speculating, guessing, disagreeing with others who think differently to us but because you have given us your word we can understand some things clearly we thank you for it and we ask Lord that you would deepen our understanding of what your word does say and teach about Jesus and particularly this morning about Jesus as a man help us to not only understand it and to accept it but to embrace it and to respond to it we thank you for him Speak to us now, I pray, in his name. Amen. I wonder how you understand the person of Jesus. As good evangelicals, for those of you who are part of our church, if you're visiting with us today, we're glad that you're here, but maybe you've never thought about it, or maybe you have, not sure. Some people think of Jesus like 50-50. He's 50% of him as God, and 50% of him is man. He's 50-50, or is it 60-40, or whatever odds you want to give it. You know, he's more God than man, or... What actually happened? What does the Bible teach us that when Jesus, God the Son, became human, did he simply wrap a body around himself so he was on the outside human and on the inside he was God? Is that what happened? Did he stop being God and became a man? How do we understand this? Some people say from the very early church there was a heresy uh, that said that when Jesus, God the Son, became human, he only appeared to be human. He was more like an apparition. That when he walked, he left no footprints. That when he touched things, he would have left no fingerprints. That he was not, not really, not flesh and blood, human. And so you read 1 John, the letter, and you'll find that John is going to great pains to point out the fact that he was flesh and blood, real human. When he walked, there were footprints. He was fully human. Well, we're going to explore some of those and see if we can come to an agreement together on our understanding of what Jesus did and who he is. Last week, the boys in the Boys Brigade certainly reminded us, and they did an outstanding job, that Jesus was promised that he is the only one through the whole reading of the Old Testament, he is the only one who can fulfill these prophecies. Um, 
And we know, because we're about to enter into the Christmas season, that Jesus was not only promised, and it was promised to come in the flesh, but he actually did it. That he came amongst us. That Jesus was born. And that it was a normal pregnancy. Sort of. She being pregnant, she got not she became pregnant she conceived not in a normal way that was miraculous she was virgin but the pregnancy the three trimesters was normal the birth was normal like god the son became her son god the infinite becomes a baby he grew he learnt he learnt the alphabet he would have learnt games here is something. Do you think he ever got sick? Could Jesus, did Jesus ever get sick? Get a cold? The Bible doesn't tell us. But your understanding of his humanity will lead you one way or the other. When I first became a Christian and I was asked that question, do you think Jesus could have gotten sick? I said no. Because he was perfect. Perfect people don't get sick. I've changed my mind. I think he was human and he was exposed to everything we're exposed to. Just because he is God in the flesh, he is in the flesh. He was human with all of our limitations. He went through the normal stages of growth, physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually. Jesus, at some point in his life, he must have come to the awareness of the realisation that God the Father was his Father and that he was God the Son. At some point he came to realise that. But from a human point of view, he would not have realised that when he was very young. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52 certainly tell us that the Lord Jesus grew physically and in favour with man and with God as well as learning. He was the oldest of five boys had four brothers, Matthew tells us, chapter 13, verse 55, and were ever given their names. Simon had a brother called Judas, and he had two sisters. He grew up in a normal family, loved his mum and dad, and like his dad, he learned a trade. As the boys reminded us last week, I wonder at which point Jesus realised who he was, that he was the Messiah and he knew he was going to sacrifice his life. Did he know it was going to be by crucifixion? And did the working with wood and with hammers and with a nail, did that ever cross his mind? I wonder what it was like for him to look at his mother when she was praying and to be thinking about it, or for him to go to the synagogue and to sit through a typical synagogue service where they're reading the Old Testament, reading the scriptures and praying and singing and him wondering if it was connecting, really, because of who he was. So Jesus did a trade. He was a construction worker. He swung a hammer for a living. And because in his day there were no power tools, then I would expect that he had calluses and that he had muscles. There is an ancient... Ridiculous story told of Jesus as a carpenter in the carpenter shop. Once he cut a length of timber and he cut it short of what he was supposed to do. Which raises another question. Did he make mistakes? Could he make mistakes? 
Are mistakes sins? Bible doesn't say. We'll have to speculate or to flesh out our understanding. Anyway, this ridiculous story is that he cut a piece of timber too short. He got the, the length wrong and so he just performed a miracle. He said, grow long. And it did. And you know that's ridiculous, don't you? How do you know that's ridiculous? What's the first miracle he performed? Ah, turned water into wine. So growing a bit of timber was not a miracle that he performed. It's ancient story of making things up. And there are other ones as well. You know, he parted the, a mud puddle like Moses did the Red Sea so he could walk through on dry ground and, and yada, yada, yada. He carried a toolbox in one hand to work and he would have carried a lunchbox that his mum packed for him, I'm sure, in the other. He did the normal things that actual people do. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious. I'm just trying to be... He was human. Fully human. As limited as we are. He was not like Superman. He didn't have a big G on his chest for God. He didn't access his divine attributes on things. He put them aside. He didn't lose them. He just didn't access them. He was human. So he would have blown his nose. He was as human as that. Would have gone to the bathroom. He ate, he slept, he had to drink water. He was real. He was human. He was fully human. And though we may not imagine it this way, but the Bible does say that he was not attractive. He wasn't handsome. Isaiah 53 verse 2. The prophet says he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we would be attracted to him. He was a normal, average, ordinary looking bloke. He was Jewish. And in many of the movies that you have, he's never been acted by anybody of Jewish descent. Just strange, which means they all look wrong. I think if we were back there in the first century, at first glance, he would not appear to be God. He was normal. He was average. He experienced all the normal events of life. Mark Driscoll and his book, Vintage Jesus, which I commend to you. It's a great read. And much of this material comes from there. He has this list. And I'll just read through it quickly. Jesus was born of a woman, a body of flesh and bones and blood and sweat. He grew up as a boy, he was part of the family, he obeyed his parents, he worshipped God and he prayed, he worked as a carpenter, he got hungry and thirsty. On points he had to ask for information. He was stressed, he was amazed, he was happy. Mark Driscoll says he told jokes. Come back to that one. He had compassion, he had male and female friends, he gave encouraging compliments, he loved children, he celebrated holidays, he went to parties and he loved his mum. Is Jesus human? Yes, fully human. Is Jesus only human? No. He is fully human, but he is also fully God. Athanasius, the church father, says this, He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. That's the truth of it. He became what we are. He became flesh and blood, human, that he might make us, humans, what he is, children of God related to his family. And it's quite common for cults and sects and 
people on the fringe of Christian denominations to deny one or the other, to deny that he is God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or others, or to deny that he was human, to play it down. And even amongst evangelicals, there can be that tendency to, because we want to exalt his deity so much, we play down the humanity. Question, could Jesus be tempted? If he could be tempted, could he sin? One very fundamental pastor, evangelical fundamental pastor, answered the question, can Jesus be tempted? Answer was no. Why not? Because James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by sin. And if Jesus was God, then Jesus couldn't be tempted. The pastor was wrong. Jesus not only could be, Jesus was. You see, he would say, while it says that Jesus was tempted, in fact, Satan was just being fooled. He was trying to tempt Jesus to do something that Jesus couldn't do. It was really easy for him to go, no, I'm not going to do that. See, I think we're watering down the humanity at that point. Jesus experienced temptation far more than you or I ever will because he is the only one who experienced temptation and never gave into it, never once backed off. You know that's the best way to deal with temptation, don't you? Just give in. I'm joking. But Jesus never gave in. So he, ex he experienced the full pressure of temptation and never once relented. So my answer is, could Jesus be tempted? Yes. Was he tempted? Yes. Could he have sinned as a man? Potentially. Yes. Because he was man. Could Adam sin? Yes, he did, but he was perfect as well before his sin. Jesus was like that, but he didn't. Ah, that's the crucial point. Or even this one. If Jesus was as human as we are, did he have a sinful nature like we do? Did he have an imperfect human nature like we do? And many of us will simply want to go, no, of course he didn't. He was perfect in every way. And yet the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, and like many things in the scriptures, you've got to interpret it. It says, For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Did Jesus have a sin nature? We're not told. All we are told is that he was tempted in every respect as we are, and we are told that not once did he give in to any temptation, that he was without sin. So if he did have a sin nature or not is really hypothetical or not that important, I guess. But if he did, and he never sinned, it'll give you an appreciation for the depth that he went to for us, and that when we are being tempted... He is the one that we are to go to as a high priest because he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And the way that he lived his life under the power of the Spirit is how we are to live our life. And just as he could resist temptation, so now we, by his power, by him living in us, by his Spirit, can resist temptation. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free. We do not have to sin. Well, the early church wrestled with this whole thing of how could God become man? 
How could he be God and man? How do you, how do you explain that? And it took them generations, in fact, a couple of centuries. And in 451, the Chalced they met at Chalcedon. And the Chalcedonian Creed, which is still cited and followed today by Orthodox Christians, says that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was one person. There aren't two Jesuses. There's one Jesus, one person, but with two natures. Not two personalities, two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. When Jesus became man, he did not change his divine identity as God, but he simply changed his role. As Augustine said, he added to himself which he was not. He did not lose what he was. He added something. He took upon our humanity. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, though being perfectly equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be maintained, grasped, held on to, but emptied himself and became man. That phrase, emptied himself, has tormented theologians since Paul wrote it. Of what did he empty himself? Well, the hymn writer says, of all but love. <laughs> it's a mystery. We're right on the edge of trying to explain the divine. Jesus was, is, fully God, equal in every way. Perhaps he emptied himself of the status, the role of being God. And he took on a new status and a new role of humanity in order for our salvation. Mark Driscoll says, and probably correctly, he laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. He had the power, he had the ability, he is God. But he voluntarily submitted that to the Spirit and to the Father, that he never himself access his divine rights or abilities while he was on earth. He emptied himself, voluntarily gave up that, or not gave it up, uh, put it aside. Still his, just never accessed it. Didn't cease to be fully God. He was fully God. He lived, though, if you read the Gospel of Luke, you'll find many, many references that he lived by the power and the anointing of God the Spirit. <clears throat> when I realised this, it transformed the way I think about the Christian life. Every miracle Jesus did, every teaching that he taught, he did as a man under the power, influence and direction of God the Spirit. Every miracle he performed, he didn't perform it as God accessing his own abilities. He, accessed, he performed the miracles as a man accessing the power of the Spirit. Makes sense? Which means, of course, we have that same spirit. And he calls us to live in the same way. It's not us doing the miracles, it's the spirit doing the miracles through us. Well, that's what it was like for Jesus. Luke says to us, he was conceived by the spirit, anointed by the spirit, baptized with the spirit. He was full of the spirit, led by the spirit. He came in the power of the spirit. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He rejoiced in the spirit. The life he lived, he lived by the spirit. And we can do the same, living by the same spirit. G.K. Chesterton, a great author, wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and in it he said, as he thought about this issue of Jesus and his humanity, he felt that Jesus didn't have a sense of humour, that he was always very serious, that he was burdened with sin. I wonder if you think about Jesus like that. 
I once had a pastor say to me that he thought Jesus did have a sense of humour and I was shocked. I thought it was inappropriate for Jesus to laugh. This pastor, a great friend of mine still, Noel Coleman, he said he could see Jesus at the top of a hill with the, the disciples, and particularly Peter, he would rib them, hit him in the ribs and say, race you to the bottom and off he would go. And I was horrified. This is the son of God you're talking about. Ah, you see, emphasising his divinity. We're thinking about his humanity, and that's something that my pastor understood pretty clearly. I think Jesus did have a sense of humour. He was a fun guy to be with. They were always inviting him to parties. He hung out with wild people, and crowds seemed to be attracted to him and gather around him. Besides, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4, there was a time to laugh. And Proverbs says, a merry heart does good. There are several passages, in fact, in the Gospels that we stumble over. But they only make sense, or they make better sense, when you say, oh, he's being funny, he's exaggerating, he's being outrageously preposterous to make a point. You know, take the plank out of your own eye. Those sorts of things. It's Jewish humour. I don't get it. <laughs> Camel to go through the eye of a needle. Apparently they would have been slapping their sides. That's funny. Whereas we have commentaries to try and explain. What does this mean? He called the Pharisees a bag of snakes. He made fun of the way they tithe. He said, you guys even tithe your spice rack? You mint and you're coming? He was pretty much in their face with the Pharisees when he said to them on numerous occasions, have you guys ever read in the scriptures? Read it, they'd memorised it. He was almost pushing them. He experienced the full range of emotions. The Bible certainly gives that. So Jesus did have a sense of humour. And there are several books now being written to explore all of those possibilities. That one form of his humour is to be extreme in exaggerating. One form of humour. Um, many people assume that Jesus was always mild-mannered, endlessly patient, affirming, tolerant, that he only ever spoke kind words, that he never got angry, he avoided conflict, and they have the picture of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, which is not the Jesus of the scriptures or of the Bible. Jesus preached in the open air, so he had a strong voice. He commanded demons to leave and he told them to shut up. He even told lepers to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. He argued with religious types. He did things that confronted their traditions. He got angry. He felt deeply. And on one occasion, he even ignored his mum and some close friends. He rebukes the wind. He gives permission for 2,000 pigs to drown in the sea. He offended some people, like in John chapter 6, and it seems that he did so deliberately. He was pushing the boundaries. He called others hypocrites, and he goes on a tirade against them. At one point, he sighs in frustration. He calls Peter Satan. And at one point, he even says, how long do I have to put up with you? He had the full range of human emotions. He was human without sin. It's just absolutely amazing that God... God the Son chose to come to live amongst us as one of us in this fallen, broken, sometimes evil world. He was tempted. He had money issues. He was poor. He was homeless. He was the target of vicious rumours. He was physically abused. He knows what it was like. He had days of loneliness and of deep sorrow and of exhaustion. He was betrayed by someone close to him. 
and the others, his close disciples, turned their backs on him. He had issues with his family growing up and even up until his death. And it was only after his resurrection that some in his own family understood who he was. Human, but not just human, that he was God and Lord. Why is this important? Because if he did not become human as we are, then we would have no mediator. The scripture says in Timothy, there is one, uh, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is still human. At the right-hand side of the Father sits a man, not just a man, but a man, the God-man, the Son of Man, our Lord Jesus. Let me read to you two passages from Hebrews and then bring this to a close. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he has to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In chapter 4, verse 14 and following. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Who is this man, Jesus? Well, this morning we are saying he was a man, fully human in every meaning of the word, yet without sin. But he's more than a man, but he was a man, the friend of sinners, the one who came for us. Let me lead you in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've been, as you know, we've been meditating and thinking about your condescension of emptying yourself, coming into our world, experiencing life in all of its fullness just like us in order to identify with us, in order to die for us and to save us. What you have done is incredible and ultimately indescribable. And it's not to be explained, but rather it's to be believed and you are to be received. And in that process, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we believe and receive, so we are made members of your family. All because you, the Son of God, became the Son of Man. In order that we, sons of men, might become sons and daughters of God. We bless you, we love you. And we ask that you would deepen our understanding of who you are, that we might love you and serve you faithfully. We pray these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.